You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joined as always by Billy Galanko. Billy, how are you doing? Pretty dandy. Pretty dandy today. Got a brand new Vint background on your screen. Maybe one day the people will will see us on YouTube or in some other video format. Yeah, everybody should stay tuned. We're going to be, whether we like it or not, we're going to be doing video one of these days. So practicing with different backgrounds, maybe Brady and I look like we're in the same studio. It'll be great. Yeah, we'll get a budget from Vent for wardrobe and makeup and all that stuff. It'll help us out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we have, we, we, have, we, have, we have some cool stuff to talk about today multiple different levels in our company. One is a hiring announcement, which we're really excited about. Um, we just brought on Dylan Sykes, who joined the team, Came comes to us as a software engineer, a full stack developer who has is multi-talented across the tech and product space. Additionally, he's an avid tennis player and tennis content creator, has a pretty cool YouTube channel on tennis, if you're into that. Billy is going to chat with Dylan um, next week briefly and just give a little bit more detail into his background and what he's excited about in terms of working with our team. But yeah, that I think that's our big thing internally in terms of continuing to grow our team, expand our capabilities to continue building a really stellar product. And Dylan's definitely going to help us do that. Yeah, no, we're really excited. Anytime, you know, a company, I guess, are we 11 now? I've been telling people we're 11 for a while, but were we just 10? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, it would be super easy just to count. <laughs> but we don't do public math as a lot of podcast hosts don't do. So uh, yeah. we'll say we'll say number eleven. And either way, um, when your team's so small, it's always in you know anytime you hire somebody else, somebody new, it's a big deal. And we we go through careful not only skills checks but you know cultural fit kind of interviews as well. And and then as this has been more on the tech side, Brady and I haven't interacted with him as much, but we all subscribe to his YouTube channel, which he can shout out next week. And really excited to have him on. I think it's going to be a great fit and excited to build more things on the website to make it work better. Not that it doesn't work well now, but you know, <laughs> it, it, there's always more that can be done. Now Pat, Patrick's going to come on and yeah, he'll, he'll have, have a bone <laughs> to pick with us. Yeah. I mean, I think at our next company retreat, I'll probably uh, bring my tennis rackets and just like every other retreat where I bring some sporting implement and tell everyone how how good I am, then I get beat immediately. So maybe I'll hold my own a little bit better with tennis. Or maybe pickleball. Maybe pickleball, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of why I'll be interviewing him next week and not with Brady. Brady, you're going to Greece. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're going? Yeah, heading to Greece, anniversary trip, kind of a yearly trip that we do. Not to Greece, but we try and go away every year. And yeah, you know, thinking about the you know, potential of starting a family sometime in the next couple years. So running out of probably opportunities to do 10 days in, in the Grecian islands. So we thought we'd do it now. And yeah, we're flying to Athens via Paris and then spending three days in Athens in the mainland, the city there, and then doing three days in Santorini, one of the islands, check out some Assertico, so some wine and food and Instagrammable views down there. So we're really excited about that. Do a little boating, I think. And then I will come back to the mainland and drive east along the north and east along the coast through Corinth, do some historical, biblical historical stuff there, which is kind of cool. A lot of history in that area. And then up towards Parga, which is sort of a coastal resort. Well, not resort, but vacationers holiday town that has, yeah, really beautiful architecture, kind of akin to if Charleston was built into a hillside type type style with the pastel colors and kind of the, the villa style homes. So yeah, really excited to explore over there and hopefully drink some great wine and eat some good food and just, yeah, really looking to forward to the fresh seafood and hopefully really bright, vibrant, refreshing white wines. You're going way up the coast. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we like, we like to do the rent a car thing and drive. Just because like it gives you the flexibility to stop and check out little villages along the way or towns and grab a bite to eat if you see something that's interesting. Whereas if you're on like a train or something else like that, you can't quite, you know, jump out. 
Oh, I'm I'm right with you. I mean, we we are also big train people. I I think both the train and the car you can see a lot more than you can, and you get to know a place better. But I I love the driving. For me, it's mainly so I can stop out and just go take pictures of vines. He always yeah does that kind of stuff. But but you're <laughs> gonna be going. I don't know if it's like this everywhere in Europe, but like our flight from Athens to Santorini was like forty dollars person. Oh yeah, well, um, I mean it's, in- it's a one hour flight, and that's like the only flight they do, right? It's Athens to Santorini, and then if you want to go to the other islands, if you want to fly, you have to go back to Athens, and then Athens like to Crete, Athens to Mykonos or whatever. So yeah, I mean the intra-European plane flights used to be even cheaper; they used to be so cheap, and now. Now, after COVID and some consolidation and stuff, it got a little bit more. But well, uh, the ba- the base fare was like nineteen dollars, and yeah. then you know we're adding you know obviously our check bag like two check bags and stuff. It ends up being more, but yeah, the base fare is like nineteen twenty five dollars, something like that. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, um, when you're going, so I'm looking at a map now just to make sure I know where these towns are. But Corinth is close to the the Peloponnese, which is that kind of that whole peninsula island thing. I mean, I guess it's a peninsula connected by isthmuses. But that that, that area yeah. is known for its Ayoritiko, which is a red wine. I spent my weekend in solidarity reading about Greek wines to be able to chat with Brady. So you should be able to get some red wines there. That'll be kind of interesting. They're, like That island has mountains. So although it's further south, the altitude allows some of these, these red wines to, to become really interesting. So I think that would be fun. And yeah, you'll be able to balance. There is a couple other white wines that I think you'll be around. But I, I think the Asirtiko will be stellar and they grow it in some other places and then i think that i or you to go there will be cool and maybe you'll be able to get some wines from further north as well that'd be nice yeah i'm interested to see once i you know inevitably i'll come back and be like this is the best thing ever this is you know these are the wines we need to be drinking all the time and I'm not going to be able to find them here in the states so i'm looking forward to four weeks from now when i'm standing in a local shop trying to find something close to what i had over there but well, so apparently- I'll, I'll, I'll report back <laughs> Good. Yeah, I was going to say that their their main issue was that people can't really say the native variety varietal names. Apparently, Greece has over 300, 300 plus native varietals. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's up there, you know, kind of like kind of like Italy, which is a ton of native ones over the years. Either the the production of them has gone down in, the, in their certain areas or it's only made for like their local village. Some producers are trying to use some international varietals now because they think that foreigners want to see them. One one thing that's interested is like say Shinomavro or Zenomavro, however you want to say it, is a, a varietal from further north. They'll blend that because it's really tannic with Merlot, kind of like Cab and Merlot go together and they balance out, but then they'll really highlight the Merlot on the label as well so that people can, you know, they pick up the bottle thinking it's, you know, knowing it's a Greek wine and mm-hmm. think it's maybe all Merlot, but they just are familiar with the term Merlot rather than Sonomavro, yeah, yeah. which, you know, starts with an X and is kind of scary to some people. What's weird to me, though, is even with that, like they've, they've narrowed their marketing down to just focus on a few varietals. And even in this, my diploma studies, we covered like, let's see, there's, oh, Roditis was the other one that I was thinking of kind of in that area. Roditis and Moscofilero Moscofilero are two white wines you might want to check out while you're down there but yeah no we, we covered like eight wine eight varietals total and they're like there's 300 here but <laughs> yeah well, one of the one of the <laughs> recommendations i got was for a wine bar that apparently has like over 750 800 wines by their glass oh that's wild that's so, cool yeah really looking forward to flipping through that bible of a wine list nice yeah now you got me having wanted to read these bad boys again but yeah no i think that'll be really exciting i'm excited to see what you have when you come back and then let's let's touch on the last bit of vent news now we had our new collection launch on what is today i mean it's today but you know just in case this comes out tomorrow launch on september 20th is our our latest karizawa collection it features the sapphire geisha collection which is kind of following up to our ruby geishas unlike the rubies though this one actually has two complete sets rather than just one making it very exciting and appealing considering there is less than, I think it was less than 300 bottles total of both of mm-hmm. these. Made. I think it was closer to 250. And very few bottles brought to the U.S. if I remember. Like, was it in the like 20s or 30s or something of number of bottles? Yeah, yeah. Available in the U.S. I think that's about right. I'm looking at now there's 251 total bottles made of these. So we, we hold a, a small but decent percentage of all the bottles in existence. And then the other interesting fact is that 
the geishas are typically released. They're, they've been doing these for a few years now in September. So the latest one should be coming out soon. But the the next batch really will be probably the last one that they've been saying. The, the geisha series is going to end. So that's exciting. It's going to add further appeal to the, the ones that were already out. And then, you know, whoever is the collector who has, you know, X, maybe they have five of the six geishas, they're going to want to get the other collection. So it's going to make the ones that are in existence more in demand from people trying to complete their sets as well, which is exciting. Yeah, and there's, there's still Kurosawa wine in barrel out there, but they're not making any more of it, right? So Whiskey. Oh, did I say wine? Yeah, <laughs> there's still <laughs> there's still whiskey in barrel, but they're not making any more. So it's one of those silent distilleries that of which we've had a couple different collections, you know, talking about the Middleton Irish whiskey as well. Yeah. So I would say everybody go check it out. I mean, it's already 66% sold, but, you know, if by the time this comes out, there's still some remaining. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite collections that we get to do. My The most interesting producers being, you know, closed and, and the, the distillery has been destroyed. So, I mean, they dismantled it and they, they have no intention of ever making more. So go check it out. And yeah, I think that's yeah. that's all for me today, Brady. Let's get to your intro for Mr. Mark Bell. Yeah, we're excited to have Mark Bell join us today for an interview and just conversation. He was great to have on. Mark is both an investor on the Vint platform in our collections, but also on our cap table in Vint as a company. So really great perspective from, from him as he's actually the senior research fellow at the Center for Alternative Investments at Emory University. He's been there for over 15 years doing research on alternative markets, alternative asset markets, everything from collectibles to debt and yeah, anything you can think of that's outside of kind of the public traditional public equities market, you know, stocks and bonds and these types of things. He also has experience in large multifamily office space, currently has a role where they're managing around six $6 billion at Ballantine. And yeah, we're just really excited to chat with him, hear his perspective on the markets overall. Someone who has to be one of, if not the most foremost expert in alternative asset markets and, and research in terms of thinking ahead to what are the emerging markets of the future that financial asset managers are going to be concerned about and looking ahead to. So we have some good conversations about the difference in perspective on the markets between retail investors and institutions, which I think is really interesting and and relevant to us. And and yeah, there's there's a lot of information packed in here. So we look forward to to sharing this chat with you guys. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, here's Mark Bell. Hey Mark, really glad you could join us today. Hey guys, I appreciate being with you and appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, this is great. You know, this is not many times that we get to have someone on the pod who is both deep in alternative assets, has been involved with Vint both as a company and kind of as as we've grown, but also as an investor on our platform. So really excited to hear your perspective on the market. And maybe you can just give our listeners a sense of who you are, what you've been working on, and just your background briefly. Sure, Brady. I'd love to do that. I So I'm Mark Bell, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And I started being interested in illiquid assets and collectibles when I had the kind of unique opportunity to have the position of director of strategy at a hedge fund called D.E. Shaw. And the, the neat thing about that position, in addition to being a really cool firm that was doing a lot of cool stuff, was that was the job that Bezos had before he started Amazon. I have not oh, wow. had the similar success uh, but I am still married, so I'm winning at least on that front. But very, very interesting firm. And part of my job was to find new areas to invest in. And so one of the areas I spent a lot of time thinking about was collectibles and was collectibles an area that we could invest in as a firm. And at that time, 20 plus years ago, maybe a little more than that, there was a lot of inefficiencies in the market and there was a lot of institutional interest but we ultimately determined there was no real way to put money to work in a meaningful way. And so the, 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 the depth and growth of those markets and the advent of fractionalization have been kind of revolutionary in the development of those asset classes. 
So if we fast forward, I came back to Atlanta and started working with Emory about 15 years ago in what today is called the Center for Alternative Investments, where I've taught a course called Frontiers of Illiquid Investing, which I know wine is the most liquid asset, probably is not appropriate, but the <laughs> course focuses on new areas of investment like reinsurance, timber, art, NFTs, and increasingly areas of collectibles. And what we try to do is rather than talk about you know, what's, what's fun is to look at numbers and really try to build as robust of data sets as we can, or, and with those data sets, create indices, and with those indices, predict how these assets would behave in portfolios. Do they increase diversification? Do they increase what we call sharp ratio? And so we spent a lot of time on that, and students are very interested in it because it brings into focus a lot of what they've learned during their time in business school. So, you know, this week we're, we're doing data as an asset class and how to think about data. Last week we did, or next week we might do NFTs or something to that effect. But that is that is a passion and something I've spent a lot of time in and around. But I also manage the private equity and the illiquid part of Ballantyne, which is a multifamily multifamily office and RIA out of Atlanta. We manage about six billion on behalf of a couple hundred families. And those families also are very interested in uh, collectibles, how to think about it. They're interested in digital and, and, and new assets and how to think about them. And I, I have the fortunate distinction of being able to have done a PhD at Oxford. And while at Oxford was actually on the wine team, I was not on the varsity team. I was on the JV team, which is which is more fun, actually, I think, than the varsity team. But I've had a long, long interest in wine. My father was part of Knights of the Vine and, and was a wine collector. And so I was really excited when I encountered Vint and started building my own portfolio of wines really that I could never, you know, personally afford. And frankly, if I owned them, I really wouldn't necessarily want to drink them because they're valuable and going up in value. And so then all that culminated maybe, you know, last year or this year when was was asked to actually be part of the cap table. So I'm delighted to not only be a customer, but but an owner. And I'm really excited about what the what the site's doing. So that's a lot. That's the whole waterfront. Yeah, the, at at Oxford is the difference between the varsity and the JV team that the varsity team spits when they taste, and the JV team just <laughs> the difference between varsity, JV, and everything at Oxford is who plays against Cambridge. So if you <laughs> are good enough to go against Cambridge, that's effectively the varsity. But no, so so I was not strong enough to be able to kind of tell you both grape region and vintage, but sure. I at least could get my bottle shapes right. So that was good enough. Yeah. You meant you mentioned institutions in kind of the first part, the details that you were going into, institutions being interested in illiquid alternative assets, but not seeing a viable way to deploy money into those spaces. Right. Can you talk about uh maybe how the when you're talking with institutional managers what are they saying about this space now? How has their perspective on this space changed? And what are things that they're maybe wary of or cautious about in terms of the way that funds are being deployed into these spaces now? So there's there's so much interesting in, in what you just said. You know, a lot of it for us goes back to the British Rail Pension and their investment in the 70s in a series of collectibles, which did really well for the British Rail Pension Fund. But when you double click and look into why it did so well, a lot of it was driven by some Chinese porcelain. Like many portfolios, there were some pieces that just did extraordinarily well. Institutions are interested in how they can find assets that you know achieve two things. One, outperform, and two, are not correlated to equity markets. I think, I think wine specifically is... is doesn't necessarily have to have those criteria to be an interesting investment because there is essentially a built-in consumptive hedge 
for those folks who like to drink wine or who like to travel or be involved with automobiles or things of that nature, art and wine and fractionalized cars and things of that nature can provide something of a consumptive hedge. But to me, the most interesting innovation in the last 15 years, or maybe even since that time I was at D.E. Shaw, is that it used to be we looked to institutions to experiment with assets first and for retail then to follow. So things like timber, things like reinsurance, things like life settlements, those become institutional assets first. And then BlackRock and Invesco figure out how to make an ETF and it finds its way into your 401k. Right. What we've seen with the revolution around fractionalization is and collectibles in general is a willingness for retail and individual investors to experiment and kind of lead the charge prior to institutions coming in. And so I'm involved with a re- with a real estate firm that fractionalizes real estate loans. We see tremendous level of individuals participating where traditionally you might see that kind of capital only being deployed by institutions. I know obviously with with you know the fractionalization even of sneakers or certain purses, people are seeing that as a viable part of their portfolio independent of what institutions might do. So the hesitation that a lot of institutions have is one, getting good data around the asset class and what it actually can do. Two, understanding what the return dynamics are. And three, how do you build a true diversified portfolio so that you know if you're the British pension system and you're making a bet, you don't end up really having just bet on one, one Ming vase? you want to spread those bets, right? And fractionalization allows that in a way that even five or maybe at least 10 years ago, we hadn't really thought of before. Does does the dynamic of retail leading the charge, and you said this, you know, it used to be that institutions led the charge, and now there are some spaces where retail is kind of doing that, you know, deploying the capital initially. Does that cheapen the opportunity in the eyes of, institutional investors? Is that something that throws some manage, fund managers off that, oh, this isn't exclusive. This isn't something that we want to be involved with because, you know, our LPs, you know, want us to bring them, uh, you know, they don't want us bringing them an opportunity that's popping up on no, their Facebook feed. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think with a lot of assets, you know, these are things that people get and they understand and maybe they even desire. So if I can buy a fraction, it used to be, and again, we've been teaching this class at Emory for 15 years. It used to be that we would attribute to such assets what we called a consumptive value. So it's good. It's, it you know, a Ferrari may or may not go up in value, but it's also fun to drive. So we used to believe that that consumptive value was an essential part of the asset. What the what what the securitization of these collectibles has shown is that these assets actually, as you give them greater liquidity, go up in price rather than down, even when that consumptive component isn't available to the investor. So I think I think long way of saying, I think folks get it, they understand it and they, they want it. I think what the large percentage of retail does is increase the volatility more than, you know, diminish the exclusivity, right? DRC is always exclusive, even if I'm buying it $25 at a time. The, the, the place where we have seen that most, and I think we are still in the incredible early innings of it, is in the NFT space. And given, you know, that the NFT space was almost entirely retail, when that space has has you know, kind of contracted in the way that it has, it's, it's I think, tremendously overcorrected. That kind of volatility scares institutions. Yeah. Is that where you might start talking about something like your sharp ratios and such like that? Can you explain so, just to our listeners a little bit what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So the sharp, a sharp ratio is the measure of the return per unit of risk. 
And usually folks are going to define risk as volatility, price moving up and down, or risk of loss. And so what, what some of these collectible assets can do, or it's hope they can do, is provide different sources of return than equity risk. And by providing that difference, help spread the risk of the return driver, and that would increase the sharp. In other words, I get more return effectively for less risk, which in the investing world is kind of a nirvana phenomena when that mm-hmm. occurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great explanation. You you mentioned you, you mentioned the idea of uh, you know illiquidating the markets being more or less efficient over time. You know, with fractionalization, yeah. they're becoming hopefully more efficient, more accessible. With wine, we see. An opportunity, an arbitrage opportunity that can provide outsized returns, and you know if if you're able to source the right wines at the right time and at the right price in the right currency, there are some market inefficiencies that we're able to take advantage of. Is there a risk over time of those things? You know, the market becoming more efficient and the opportunity for outsized returns diminishing to a point where the asset class isn't interesting anymore to investors, or do you think that's well? Uh, well, I had an answer till you tacked on that. I mean, yes, absolutely. There is a natural dynamic with capital to increase liquidity, decrease inefficiencies, and have prices revert to a mean and a clearing mm-hmm. price. In thin markets, diamonds, records, wine, people with knowledge have a real advantage. People with access had a real advantage. Fine art, you know. As that business comes online, as price visibility becomes universal, some of those pricing arbitrage opportunities go down. Investors at that point have to either believe in the appreciation of the asset, which has been tremendously strong, or in the what I would call consumptive hedge, i.e. I want to consume wine in the future. I can buy it now to protect myself on price. That's assuming you there's no efficiency or inefficiency in the buy-sell spread. So essentially, the way we measure illiquidity is bid-ask spread, the difference between what someone wants and what someone pays. So Mm -hmm. if you think about Microsoft, if we wanted to go buy Microsoft right now, it's very deep liquid market, right? But even the first growths, there is a bid-ask spread, and those markets take time to clear. So, or even in kind of the most, you know, most highly demand wines, that will go down over time. You know, the the emergence of online auction sites, wine bid, but I don't know if it a makes it an unattractive investment, or b if it ever goes away. As people who have expertise are always looking for kind of new inefficiencies to exploit. Yeah, I was going to tack on to that then once they do become more efficient and in theory, less volatile. So preventing some of those more outsized gains potentially, but maybe that's when the institutions start becoming more, more interested, I guess, because that volatility from the retail investors kind of limited. Would that be the case? So Billy ask that. And one more time in terms of like, would it become more the case that the institutions would come in once the retail is kind of, arbitraged away the inefficiencies? Yeah, I guess if if the market and the liquidity scales to a point where it's it's more predictive, I guess, and it's more consistent, I guess that would be easier for larger scale investors to come on is kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, there's always, you know, there's always winners or losers early into a market, right? I mean, there's always and and you know markets are efficient and so for there to be high returns there needs to be some you know some commensurate level of risk or else that would get arbitraged away it's still very so you know at DE Shaw not to to you know speak too much of a former employer but you know pretend we had 10 billion dollars you know and we were levered it's still difficult to put a hundred million dollars to work in wine. It's still even difficult to put a hundred million dollars to work in art. And it's almost impossible to do it in kind of a diversified way without moving the market. So because these markets are, are, are so niche, big capital flows are kind of just structurally prevented from coming in. 
But I do think as folks evolve and thinking evolves and the research and the data evolves and we have more and more information, people will see that collectibles are an area to allocate to that have, you know, that have good return dynamics and good portfolio construction. So, so, you know, I, I do think we will have the option in the future to invest in wine in our 401ks. I, I don't think that's in the next five years, but I definitely think it's in the next 10. You know, some type of ETF, some type of, of security you could select inside a qualified account, where, which is where most Americans hold most of their assets. Yeah, we, we talk a lot, I think, internally about efficient diversification and how this fractional model kind of allows for that, right? If you have a million dollars to invest, you know, you'd be spending 10% of your portfolio to buy, you know, DRC in a three model OWC. So that's not very efficient. When, when we say efficient diversification, what comes to mind for you? And what are you looking for when you're trying to get it be efficiently diversified capital efficiency into these asset classes? Well, you know, there is a cost of complexity, right? And so if you have a thousand positions, so for me, I think of, you know, what I call exotic beta. So betas that are different than equity beta. And I would say wine or cars or collectibles are one of those betas. And then there is a view towards alpha, i.e. if I could own the entire wine market, what would that return profile look like? We really can't answer that question very well. We're getting better at it. And thanks to some of the work y'all have done, we're getting better still. But there then is a question of, well, what if I could do better than the wine market? And I think a lot of folks have, you know, there's there's basically two predominant strategies for how you would do better than just the market itself. One is a blue chip strategy, and the other is essentially an emerging strategy, right? One's kind of an LBO type approach in the private equity world. The other is kind of the venture capital approach of trying to identify wines that will become far more sought after. So, so, you know, those are some of the ways that I think about that, that aspect of the investments, but I don't know if that answers kind of the question. Yeah. I guess if, if you're evaluating a new alternative asset class, yeah. give us like your, your three keys that you're going to look for. You say, okay, like they check these three boxes and it makes yeah. me comfortable deploying capital to, to that alternative asset class, maybe that isn't as well known or developed in the market? So, you know, there's there's a couple different hats that I, I have to kind of disclose as I answer that. One is an academic who's looking at frontiers and illiquid markets. The other is as a fiduciary allocating capital on behalf of our families. For the latter, that second bar is a really, really high. We have to have a lot of data. We have to have a lot, and we have to have a really good forecast of what we think will happen. So things like crypto, as an example, where even if we're very bullish, it's very hard to say over one, two, five years what that might look like, even though you might have a lot of conviction around blockchain, for example. So, so there the bars quite high. From an academic standpoint, the things that we'd look at as we try to construct optimal portfolios using collectibles is, you know, first, liquidity. Second, you know, how can you get meaningful diversification, which, you know, to the to the prior question, you know, maybe that's 12 items, you know, you want different kind of return drivers, whether it's vintage geography, you know, whatever that might be. So with art, it might be different artists from different periods, from different countries. So, you know, 12 to 25 different names in the portfolio. So can I get liquidity? Can I buy and sell? Can I get, you know, sufficient diversification? And then the third is what are the catalysts that are going to drive prices higher? Why, why, you know, what is the, the use case or the base case for why I think I'm going to make money? And then inherent in that third one is has that proven out over time? Have we been able to see that actually happen on, you know, on a backcast? Yeah, that's really good. 
Yeah, I like the way that you describe. I mean, the the two hats, as you said, that you wear between looking to the frontier, looking to the future, and having to be very conservative with the you know the funds that you're allocating, and yeah. the ex and even the, the thesis behind when you come to uh, assume these families, right? You're having to present a relatively conservative thesis on an asset class before you get into it. What's what's the yeah. what, what's the difference between a product? that is interesting cool fun like a ferrari yeah and 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 how does it cross over into an asset yeah so so you know again this is so you know we look at something like reinsurance which is in the news right now because it's really a lot of it around catastrophe is making bets on hurricanes we just had a very large event obviously in puerto rico you know that is not a fun asset Right. I mean, people aren't like, wow, I'd yeah, love to yeah. bet on Japanese earthquake or I mean, mm-hmm. Buffett is very good at that business. He might. But that is an in, that is an asset that institutions and hedge funds have pioneered, which today, you know, you might see in someone's 401k on a retail basis. From the retail end, we think of it a little bit differently, which is there are certain speculative assets where you're essentially speculating. So that money that you might have taken a trip with or that money that you might have taken to a casino but it's certainly not the money that you're planning on you know living on or paying your mortgage with tomorrow that is where you can start to you know invest get educated make investments around emerging assets so for our clients when they're holding let's just say BTC they're usually holding it in kind of that speculative pool versus saying I you know I have a view that BTC is going to be $100,000 in X years and I want this asset to do this work for me in the in the portfolio and in the future. So we don't you know other now with Ferraris or or wine the work that the asset might do is to essentially hedge my own consumption, and that's work enough. Otherwise, we don't have or we don't offer kind of a, a price forecast of where we think mm-hmm. it can go. Now, we do do that for traditional assets, stocks, bonds, even venture capital, private equity, as we're constructing portfolios. So I think where that crossover is between a speculative asset and part of a core portfolio is once the allocator, which is my seat, is able to have a view of what the return profile of the asset is. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. We we talk about you know a lot of times in our messaging and we're when we're framing up the broader wine market and the value proposition there, we typically talk about the 115, 120 plus years of like cobbled together kind of return data where we can see around I think eight, eight and a half percent returns over that period of time. Yeah. What, what does that data have to look like? What have to be, the, what does what the bones of that data have to be? You know, I can't, I assume I can't just walk into a fund and say, Hey, look, we have these numbers and it goes back to the early 1900s and we're seeing eight and a half percent, you know, annualized. <laughs> So, you know, the difference between eight and a half percent and y'all, y'all might have put some stuff out on this, you know, the the speed at which your money doubles at eight and a half percent versus seven is that is actually staggering, right? And so if yeah. the persistence of that eight and a half is there, it's actually quite meaningful. And if that eight and a half comes from something different than just growth in the equity market. It's very, very valuable, which is part of why my interest and my enthusiasm and, and even my own investment in, in the platform. But one of the biggest challenges we see with collectibles when we look at return data is essentially it is a repeat sales index. In other words, what that means is it's the same bottle of wine that's getting sold multiple times, which presents two problems. One, while wine often appreciates with age, it does have a terminal value of you know when it can be drunk. So you can't, unlike a Reuben or a Michelangelo or something, you can't trade it forever. It does have some expiration date. And the second thing is, 
The biggest problem that we see with collectibles and the returns data is a lot of times it's the best stuff that we see being sold multiple times. So it speaks to, if you want to try to imitate those returns, you need to probably be buying the best, but people generally don't keep records of, you know, kind of not great stuff that they're buying and selling or bothering to sell it multiple times or holding it for sale. So I'm not buying a bunch of yellowtail and putting it in my garage and hoping to sell it in 30 years for more. And if I did, there's probably very limited records of it. So with art, with cars, it's it's the best that are kind of grabbing that appear in the data. And so when we try to say, what does the asset do as a whole, we're a little bit, you know, just talking about, say, the stock market equivalent of the Dow Jones. Well, the Dow Jones over time does really well, but people come in and out of the Dow Jones. So when we think about the world of art, you know, there are certain artists who have come in and out of favor. There are artists such as, say, Damien Hirst, who've had, who's seen serious corrections in their pricing. There are artists, and this might be applicable online, who just have produced too much work. There's just too much of it out there in order to sustain higher prices. I, I can't think of the wine equivalent, but I'm sure there are folks who've built, you know, great wine brands and then kind of put out too much wine in order to sustain kind of higher prices. So, you know, those are, those are, you know, some of the challenges as we try to look back and say, what does wine do and when? And there's a real question, Brady, among kind of scholars who are working on this around, are collectibles really a high beta, meaning a high variable on the wealth effect, i.e. as the world becomes wealthier, it drinks more better wine. So therefore, wine would be correlated to GDP. And as GDP increases, and as certain phenomena we've seen globally, like the growth of the global 1%, the concentration of wealth, you know, some things around Peckety and, and others where we've seen that wealth allows for wealth to be concentrated. Is that really the phenomena that's driven global wine prices over the last particularly 30, but maybe even 50 years? Or is it an asset class that's independent of that and has its own return drivers around quality, around education, around brand? And, you know, I wouldn't say folks are evenly divided. I'd say about 70% of folks are in the first camp and maybe 30 are in the latter. Yeah, Billy, do you have anything to add about the like the art market based on some of your background? I didn't know if that was you know of interest in terms of talking about this conversation. I mean, a, a little bit. My my mind started wondering a little bit, like on somebody like like Hockney. Yeah, like he commands high prices, but yet he is fairly prolific and he's still producing. I mean, it, it depends. I mean, some of his his mediums have changed over time. But I was just thinking about somebody like that who maybe certain categories well, of their work maintain their value whereas so hawkney you know again like you know basquiat so one of the hawkney is incredibly interesting in part because i think many people believe once he has passed and there's no longer new work the existing work will appreciate meaningfully so as a catalyst we see the death of the artist as a meaningful catalyst for prices, it's not actually the biggest catalyst. The biggest catalyst is essentially world-class museum exhibitions, even for established artists like Kandinsky that might have a retrospective. Those retrospectives will drive prices higher, but, but, but death, because it creates a view to the finite amount of the art is is super is super important but what's so important about hawkney and many of the very very collectible artists is their work is immediately recognizable and identifiable and so they have a super strong brand that communicates so a lot of people believe that art and art investing is about prestige and that when we were when we were a tribal, 
people, prestige, and where you sat among the group was very important because you didn't want to be kicked out. So nobody wants to look dumb around art. No one wants to say this big splash of yellow is really the thing. They want others to tell them that Picasso, Warhol, Hockney are good. And if others can recognize it, then great. And we see the same phenomena with wine, where the few labels that everyone recognizes as amazing, whether they truly are of just exponentially better quality, the recognition that Latour has drives the price, right? Because no one's going to say you picked a bad wine if you have Latour. In the same way, no one's going to say, gosh, you're such an idiot of building a collection of Picassos. And part of that is when you walk into your house, you say, wow, is that an Albers? Is that a Picasso? Is that a Hockney? Oh, wow. Is your you know cellar full of Colgan and Schrader or whatever it might be that people will say, you must really know your stuff. So there is a social signaling. There is a prestige element. But those brands are very real. That's not to say that Hockney's not a great artist or Colgan doesn't make a great wine. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess when I'm going back to my analogy of like say his his kind of oil works versus like some of his prints, you know, if one or or maybe to your part where it's like somebody creates a piece that may not be as intricate or skill driven, mm-hmm. maybe. But I mean that could draw the parallel to the wine brand having an off vintage, you know, it's the yeah. same. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or wine labels that will make like a second label or like a third label underneath. Right. And that, that would be kind of the oil versus the print versus, you know, and, and versus sketch. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I do believe in aesthetic merit. I mean, I know that that isn't the purpose of today's conversation, but I mean, I do believe some art is better than others, but I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in the academic work around wine and art, not necessarily of what is better, but how markets respond and what roles they can play in portfolios and how can we build robust data that's free from, you know, aesthetic interpretation. But that's not to say I don't, many people are very critical of the work and think that I hate art or I want to reduce everything to money. And that, that that's not at all the case. And I think most people who are interested in wine and, and love wine and, and are passionate about wine are not that way. They they are interested in food and culture. They're interested in, in dirt and terroir. They're interested in the environment. They're interested in the different techniques. They're interested in the intricacies of wine. The same way people are interested who are interested in art are interested in the production techniques. And so it's not... It's not an effort to reduce wine and take the enjoyment out of wine as much as it is to evolve a conversation around how we think about financial assets. And in the same way, for example, that timber was traditionally an industrial asset. Timber used to be owned by people who were making boards and making paper. And today, timber is a financial asset. It's owned by Stanford and the University of Chicago. It's owned by people who then sell it to people who need to you know, make boards and wood and paper. I think we will see something similar among the great watches, the great wines, the great cars, where increasingly people will own fractions of those as financial assets. That makes a lot of sense. So, so you don't have shoeboxes, baseball cards, and Rolexes in your, yeah. in your, in your uh, yeah, in your case. Are you, are you a wine? Would you call yourself a wine enthusiast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 you know, a poor one, right? You know, so, but yes, I'm very interested in wines for a lot of those reasons I articulated. You know, you mentioned baseball cards, right? I think, I think it, it is, it is. Very hard for us to explain the strength of resurgence in baseball cards. And our view over the last 10 years was that comic books and baseball cards had really succumbed to eBay 
and total price transparency across the market to y'all's earlier question had kind of flattened pricing and and decreased the ability to kind of you know have any real market momentum we've seen since covid tremendous interest in baseball cards and and i think and i don't know how applicable it is for for the site for y'all's site but i think there is a joy in collecting and i think as people have been kind of locked in their homes they've refound the joy of wanting to find that record that had the misprinted album cover or the baseball card that they were missing from their collection and and hunting that down and adding it to the collection is a fun thing to do the same way putting a puzzle together is enjoyable because the mind likes to see the patterns and the shapes fall into place so the joy of collecting baseball cards has been a tremendous beneficiary and we've seen particularly around the ultra mint golden age comics a real real strong price resurgence yeah i've definitely taken up a bit of that both in both in wine and in baseball and especially as my my home team orioles are starting to build up a you know a, a good farm system and stuff it's been fun to collect the you know, the low A baseball cards from the up and coming players and, and and kind of yeah, tracking eBay and watching watching yeah. the prices move as you know they hit their first home run and other things like that. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And 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 in my mind, I think there's a real opportunity for entrepreneurs and and, and we've worked on this for our families of being able to actually list those assets, whether it's firearms or comic books or wine. And see that side by side with your stocks and your bonds and your cash and your checking. And and rather than having to go on eBay and kind of hunt around and see what the price is or mess around with Zillow and try to figure out what your house might, might, might or might not be worth, being able to really see people's kind of net worth move in real time, I think is something that as people make these fractional investments across the internet, something that consolidates and allows them to see it in some kind of wallet will kind of emerge and then that will be a pretty addictive, pretty addictive thing that to look at during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, we really appreciate your you know confidence, obviously in our model and, and this industry and all that you were able to share today. I think it'll be really interesting for our listeners. And I mean, it's been really helpful for me contextualizing the markets and, you know, those different hats that you wear, certainly are yeah it's helpful to have that perspective for us so i really appreciate your time absolutely guys i appreciate it and 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 you know i appreciate what you're doing in terms of creating a new market that i've i've certainly enjoyed so keep up the good work thanks mark thanks mark bye-bye see you guys to check out our current offerings and to sign up for the vint platform find us at www.vint.co that's www.vint.co For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.